Hey, listeners, you're about to hear a fantastic deluxe recap episode of all the highlights from SGM 2022 brought to you by the Curbsiders team members. We recorded this over two separate days at the conference. So that's, you'll notice that there's a part one and a part two feel to this as the people are different um, for the first half of the episode and the second half. I also wanted to mention that in the second half of the episode, I introduce a character, Dr. Vataha, and full disclosure, Wato actually comes from Vataha. Vataha was my family's original name. And when they came to this country, Vataha was changed to Wato. So uh, Dr. Vataha, he's a bit of a rascal, so give him a break. But uh, let, let us know if you like it. If you don't like it, we can, we can scrap the character. Anyway, uh, without further ado, let's get on to this great recap episode. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Paul, we're starting the show. <laughs> Flawless. <laughs> we are we are recording in a different format than usual, Paul. We're recording in person, and this is this is deeply unsettling I don't for like me. It. Yeah, this is <laughs> just upsetting. staring in each other's eyes across the table <laughs> from each other. But we are surrounded, Paul, by some some great friends, which I'm excited about. This is this is one of the more fun things we get to do when we get to go to a conference. Of course, right now we're at SGIM 2022. Paul, are we calling it SGIM or SGIM? I, I, I go Sigum. I know Sigum? it's not popular, but Sigum is what I've been doing. Yeah. All right. I think I think maybe we've established this before. You could just call People it whatever you want. Like SGM, I think. I think that, that tends to be the majority, but I, it's, I, I've been Sigum this whole time, so this is what I'm sticking with. Yeah. You are kind of a rebel, so that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, on today's show, we are, we're going to introduce our, our great friends in a minute here, but we will be recapping our favorite pearls, highlights from, from this conference, which is, has been a great conference. But Paul, what is it? What is it that we do on the curbsiders? Why don't you tell the audience about that? Yeah, great question. We usually use um, expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. But this time around, we're recapping. The, we saw a bunch of experts, but now we're just going to tell you about them, and you're not going to actually get to hear from the experts. So a little bit of a different format, but it will still be wildly entertaining and educational. We have with us here, and I, I think maybe we'll go to Ira first. We have with us Ira Krishnovskaya. Is that how close was I to getting that correct? That was like ninety-seven point two percent correct. I am very impressed. I feel like warmth in my heart right now. That was wonderful. I, Just, by the way, given Matt's history, I mean, you have no idea what the accomplishment this is. I've come I think a long he's way. Smith before, so this is heroic work. Well, there was no phonetic practice, so that was incredible. Thank well, you. Why don't you tell the audience how you pronounce your own name? That way they can get it correct. And it, correct me if I'm wrong. Are you from the Curbsiders Teach? Because I've listened to that show and I really like it. Wow, Matt. Yes, <laughs> I am on the Curbsiders Teach. I am a co-host with Molly Hoyblein. Very lucky to be a part of that. I would say practice changing knowledge to my med ed friends out there. And if you want to pronounce my name correctly, it's Krizhanovskaya or the accents on the nov. So Krizhanovskaya. Or if we were saying it in Russian, it's Krizhanovskaya. All right. I got it. <laughs> but I you can just call me Ira for now. <laughs> We're going to call you Ira today. Yes, yes. But Krizhanovskaya, I'm yes. going to get that next that was, time. That was great. Well, 
and not not unsurprisingly, you actually have some teaching pearls that you wanted to start us off with here. I do. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Matt. So with my Curbsiders Teach slant, I was excited to check out the MedEd offerings at SGEM. I'm an SGEM fan. Sorry, Paul. And uh, I went to this fantastic <laughs> workshop yesterday by Bernice Rowe and other SGEM Teach faculty entitled Effective Teaching Models in the Ambulatory Care Setting. And they reviewed the OG teaching model of the one-minute preceptor, or as I affectionately call it, the unlikely to happen under eight minutes preceptor, <laughs> which is really helpful for reviewing presentations, di- differential diagnosis planning with early learners. And to remind everyone, the one-minute preceptor involves getting a commitment, probing for understanding, teaching a general principle, reinforcing what was done well by the learner, and then correcting any errors. And so the one-minute preceptor is also um, kind of supplemented by SNAPS, this really exciting kind of punchy model. And that is a more learner-driven model, learner-centered. And that stands for summarize, narrow, analyze, probe, plan, and select a learning topic. And for a lot of people, SNAPS is very um, kind of learning to the deficit. What is, how do you probe a growth mindset of the learner? What, how do you identify a gap in knowledge and really ask the learner to bring in information there? And SNAPS is for the the adult learner? Like, can we move forward, the uh, re- resident in their third year, the fellow? But the new teaching model on the block that I learned about is PIP, and that stands for Precepting in the Presence of the Patient, which I thought was a great acronym, P-I-P-P. Are you down, are you down with <laughs> no. P-I-P-P or not? Paul looks I, like he's going to hurl. Yeah, no, so um, I know, I know. I, it feels like just describing a thing, so I'm sure there's actually a method to it. <laughs> there is, there is. There's, it's, a, it's the new kid on the block, only a couple years old, but the literature does show that this model increases patient and physician time face-to-face, and patients thought that they were in the room with the physician six minutes longer than they actually were and thought that the overall encounter was actually two minutes shorter um, for the patient relative to the other person precepting models, excuse me, for the physician. So really a chance to kind of be in the room with a patient, get more face-to-face time and do your teaching there. So if anybody wants to try out that PIPP or PIP, um, <laughs> I would uh, I would love to share more about that. Was that in both inpatient and out? That sounds almost like bedside rounding that I would do in the hospital, but was it also in the clinic as well? Exactly right. And so this was actually focused for the ambulatory care setting, but you are totally spot on, Matt. This is taken from bedside rounding. So trying to move that same model into the outpatient setting. Yeah. I don't know, Paul, when you, do you do any of your, when, when you're pre, I know you do a lot of precepting. Do you, do you ever go to the bedside in the clinic with the, with the residents and do the teach, like the whole thing there or? Yeah. At our specific, uh, cash stock facility, I, almost all the residents, I go see the patients. Um, so yeah, it, there's a lot of bedside teaching. Um, probably too much if you ask the residents. <laughs> You've been pipping this whole time. Yeah, I've been pipping the whole time. <laughs> he's a he's a PIMP of the of the PIPP know, model. Like the, the PIP model was running like it's a, a, awfully a, a better thing to do than pimping. So I think so too. I like what you did there, Shreya. And we haven't introduced her yet, but I'm sure people recognize her voice. This is the great Dr. Shreya Trivedi, who's been on Curbsiders. She's been on Curbsiders Women in Medicine. She's on her own podcast, Core I Am. Shreya, thank you for joining us today. Hello, hello. It is so glad. It's so great to be back with you guys. Um, and particularly with my my very um, like adored friend, Justin Burke, who I like haven't seen for two and a half best years. Best friend forever. I, it's really great to see you. <laughs> this is one of the best parts of the conference is getting to hug Shreya. 
for for those who are new to the who are new to the show, Paul, do you remember the nickname that we have given uh, Justin and Shreya? Yeah, no, of course. I'm glad for the chance to say it, Shreyvies. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who coined it. I think it was probably Justin, I but so. I, I think that's right. You know, I don't think that's right, guys. I, that doesn't sound like. Uh, <laughs> I think it was maybe yeah. the Chris, Chris, the Chew Manchu, or someone. He, I think Justin was all hopped up on diet Mountain Dew. And <laughs> <laughs> I am fully embraced it. I was ready for it. It was good. It's uh, <laughs> Justin. What What did you take away from the conference so far? I one of the best things I like about SGM or uh, or however um, Paul wants to call it, is the diversity of different things you can learn here. And one of the things that I focused on a lot today or yesterday was the professional development components. Mm. And one of the talks I went to was mission-driven and more integrating meaning into career planning by Dr. Amber Deptola and friends. Um, and it was the introduction of this icky guy uh, uh, schematic that uh, uh, Ira and you and others, it sounds like, when have you, heard when about When you this. just said it there, you said icky guy, and I'm just thinking of like yep. some creep hitting on women at <laughs> that a was, That was how Ira taught me to remember it, and now I am trying to be uh, uh, um, uh, yeah, culturally aware. The icky yeah. guy, it's a Japanese term, actually, Matthew, um, and it, uh, it translates into a motivational force or a notion of purpose or a, a reason for living. And it's actually been shown to be associated with um, decreased mortality and increased life. And so, especially at a professional conference, when we're saying, you know, what's your notion of purpose? What's your reason for living, Paul? We obviously turn to work um, and our professional, our professional <laughs> work. Um, and, and this was a really great thing of, I think, trying to find a, a mission and using this as a framework. Um, and so, Shreya, I would love to go through this schematic with you um, just to talk out kind of how they approached it and so what others can do to uh, use this framework to try to find what what their reason to live yeah. is. Paul, oh, I think we're gosh. about to witness some on-air therapy right here for Shreya. <laughs> yes, or an existential, like, crisis. <laughs> so, <laughs> Either one. Sort of last episode. <laughs> so I'll quickly go through the four uh, foundational questions, and then Shreya would love your insights, feedback, answers, or, or commentary. It. Go for it. So the four uh, petals of the, the flower that we did in this workshop were uh, question number one is identifying what are you good at? What feedback do you receive that you are, are good at? Um, the second question, what do you love? What would you volunteer to do if there was no payment? Third, what does the world need? Meaning like, um, what is a article that you might forward to other people? What's something you're passionate about? And then um, fourth, what can you get paid for? Um, what are your thoughts about those initial questions? Um, they're fantastic questions that we don't ask enough. And it actually makes me think about like, we do annual reviews as faculty. Like, why aren't we going through this instead of like, here are my accomplishments. <laughs> I did it last year. Um, but I'm curious when you went through it, um, if you feel comfortable sharing, what did you have any like, realizations, epiphanies, if that's a strong word. Yeah, no, lots of epiphanies. Um, I think that to your point, a lot of times I think we think about academic currency and how we're progressing in a very kind of linear academic system. And this as even just an exercise of trying to see about what are things that um, you uh, really find meaningful. Um, I think for me, a lot of it was ultimately coming down to thinking about things that I enjoy, doubling down on like wanting to do more teaching and finding dedicated time for teaching, wanting to write more, um, trying to get rid of things that I don't like doing, like yeah. a review of systems. Um, <laughs> and it, this, uh, this concept of trying to find out what is something that, you know, sparks joy in, in work. Um, I think it's so hard. I think, I think we're like all at that stage, but maybe more so with, with the surge, um, and the, and the pandemic just in general, but, um, 
I think it's so hard, one, to get rid of our trainee mindset where we're just kind of going through the motions. Like that feels very uh, familiar to us because that's been like the past decades of our lives. And then getting into maybe is, is this like, is, is Ikigai like the faculty mindset that we need to get into where we're like, all right, where does, where do things align? What are my values? And then you're like, what? are my values. (laughs) Like I value like having joy, having connections with people and how do you get paid for that? Uh, (laughs) Paul's frowning (laughs) this whole time. Sure. I mean, and to your point, I think very much like at a professional conference, it's focused on, you know, our work lives, but it also, I think is a great, you know, iterative process to also look at things that bring us joy outside of work and kind of even thinking broader of what um, are big components that you want to spend your time doing. One of the things that I really loved, it kind of had these categories and then there's an overlap. So what you're good at and what you love is is ultimately what makes up your passion. What you love and what the world needs is kind of your personal mission. What the world needs and what you get paid for is a vocation. And then what you're paid for and what you're good at is your profession. And kind of thinking about what how your passion, mission, vocation, profession can align to your next steps. And so I think my my biggest epiphany now is I've learned after leaving this conference, I think I'm going to do what really brings me joy, um, can pay me, and is what the world needs and uh, become a professional mascot for sports. <laughs> I think that's, uh, that's my next step. Shreya, I wanted to ask because I know later today you're going to be pre- presenting on the, these updates in digital scholarship. Yes. And, uh, you know, personally, maybe I'm a little biased, but do you have any any good news for us as podcasters from yes. this update? I did want to highlight one study in the last year that is meta, and I'm all about the meta life. Um, it's asking <laughs> it's asking the question, um, how does uh, knowledge retention differ when you are commuting versus just sitting in a room? And I think this is an important question because um, I've been a lot, in a lot of rooms where people kind of throw around like, oh, well, you're multitasking while you're listening to podcasts. Are you guys really retaining anything? And our traditional stuff that we do is better. And so I just love, love, love this paper for testing that hypothesis. And it was actually really well done. It was at four institutions. So kudos to these these authors. They did a double blind, uh, a crossover RCT. Um of two two podcasts where they had um, residents listen while they were sitting down versus commuting. And then they served as their own controls um, doing the other kind of intervention versus control setting. There's no difference at all in terms of knowledge retention immediately, as well as one month afterwards on a delayed recall test, a completely new test. So I think just like props that maybe multitasking or listening. If you're listening in your car right now, you're not uh, losing anything in terms of knowledge recall or retention that you would sitting as you would maybe in a lecture hall. So I just, uh, one, like the med ed researcher in me is so happy that it was such a well-designed thing, but also like we're testing our assumptions, which which is what I live for. That is my ikigai. I love, I love testing assumptions. Way to, way to bring it full circle. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, was, it really, it really lights me up. That's like my, my crack. Yeah. I think it's very exciting. Emergency medicine is really ahead of the game in internal medicine on these yeah, things. They and, have uh, been. They, they have always have been yeah. at the early. I think this is a great study and I think it's extrapolating. I'm going to start uh, doing a lot more when I'm driving and commuting. I'm going to start reading more books. I'm going to start um, painting, I think, while uh, commuting. So uh, I'm really excited about this study. For for the audience, I will say that both Core IM, Curbsiders, Cribsiders, Curbsiders Teach, all of our shows have show notes. We have uh, infographics that go along with it. And I really do think you need to interact with the material more than just listening. You need to revisit it. Uh, but it is good to know that just listening, the when you're listening, it's okay if you're in the car or 
Yeah. Uh, folding laundry probably is the, you know, that works. Uh, <laughs> we yes. should do some more RCTs with other multitasking right. things. But uh, yeah, please, all these, we, we try to give many tools for people to learn this stuff. Uh, speaking of learning, why don't we, why don't we go to the great Nora Toronto who you write, you write the Curbsiders Digest. So I think it's probably pretty hard to sneak up on you with new information since you're basically like crushing the literature all the time. But what have you learned so far at the conference that you wanted to pass on to the audience? Definitely not true at all. I am constantly <laughs> learning new things and learned many, many yesterday. Paul and I had the the honor of attending many sessions together yesterday. Um, yeah, and I do have friends. And yeah. <laughs> he actually imagined me at one of them, but I was not there at that one. Um, but we did attend the Breast Cancer Survivorship in Primary Care Workshop, which was really good. Uh, Amy Farkas and friends ran it um, from the Medical College of Wisconsin and then a couple different uh, spots in Pittsburgh. And I, I learned a bunch at this. I think it's an area that that I have not had a ton of training on in uh, in either residency or in my my future uh, direction as an oncology fellow. Um, Congrats. And I'm very <laughs> excited. Um, but it definitely lots of transitions that, uh, that get uh, lost in the shuffle um, between breast cancer clinic and then primary care clinic. Um, so a couple pearls that I that I learned from that uh, session. One, uh, vasomotor symptoms, super common, as we all know. Um, I, I didn't know the latest on kind of the best practices for managing them, um, specifically hot flashes. They're common. They're severe, prolonged. Um, they last far past when treatment ends. And um, there are a couple different options to treat. No, no hormone therapy. That's kind of the one, one first primary lesson. Um, uh, the other uh, is that SSRIs are really useful in managing hot flashes, but there are interactions between tamoxifen, which many, many breast cancer survivors are on long-term, and uh, and some of the SSRIs, SNRIs, uh, in particular paroxetine, fluoxetine, and sertraline. Um, they inhibit CYP2D6, which is a nice, nice little throwback to med school. Yeah, you know? I love just like thinking yeah. about all the SIP interactions. <laughs> That's just like, I'm a big SIP yeah. nerd. I don't know about you, Paul. That was a nice review. I mean, I knew it already, but it's always yeah, nice yeah. to hear it out loud. I think that's so a good good. hashtag SIP nerd, you know. So yeah. but what can we what can we use for these? So folks? yeah, so we can use uh venlafaxine, mm -hmm. we can use citalopram, escitalopram. And uh, there are a couple others, but kind of important to stay away from paroxetine, fluoxetine, and sertraline in particular. Okay. And the point with venlafaxine that they made is it's probably a class effect. So you're probably also okay doing duloxetine. I think any of the SNRIs are probably okay to use, but venlafaxine is the one that's been studied the most. And then they also made a point of nocturnal gabapentin for patients who have specifically nocturnal symptoms. And we're talking like big doses, like I think it's 900 milligrams twice a day. Um, is also an option if, if, if there's other reasons to probably use it. So, yeah, well, I know you, Paul, you like I, to, I love I'm still looking for a reason to use gabapentin. So this might be it. Yeah, <laughs> that's fantastic. What else, uh, anything else from, tell me about distress. Yeah. Laura. So I, I was telling these guys, I learned a new term 
yesterday, which is distress. Uh, I, I guess I knew the word before, but, <laughs> yeah. um, um, but uh, it's a specific uh, definition in the oncology survivorship literature and oncology literature. Um, and it's defined as the multifactorial, unpleasant emotional experience of a psychological, social, or spiritual nature that may interfere with the ability to cope effectively with your cancer, its physical symptoms, or its treatment. Um, and uh, it's, it's kind of along the spectrum, as you could imagine, uh, with depression, anxiety, other mood disorders, adjustment disorders, but it's kind of in the specific context of cancer and cancer survivorship. Um, and uh, there, we actually have a screening tool, which I didn't know about uh, before yesterday, um, that the NCCN uh, uh, published, um, and you can actually just download it. We'll include it in the show notes. Um, but it's a, it's a literal thermometer that you ask patients to draw on and say, where is your level of distress from zero to 10? Mm -hmm. And then uh, on the side, there's kind of a list of, uh, of issues that uh, patients can, can identify as the primary sources of their distress. And so then you can, you can address the physical, the emotional, the social, practical, and spiritual, religious. It seems like if you were in a clinic that was well suited for this, that it, it's probably it might be the kind of thing the patient gets handed and they fill out ahead of time. Exactly. And you mentioned the transition between primary mm -hmm. care, the the survivorship care plans that Paul and I, we've talked about this on a survivorship episode like 200 episodes ago or <laughs> yeah. something, Paul. But the, those, I think too often either we don't ask for them or they don't make it to primary care. But maybe some of these kind of things would be in there, uh, managing the, the, the various symptoms side effects and future, do those also include future screening tests in those care plans? Like, Yeah. Um, and and uh, there are specific areas of kind of health maintenance that that uh, the workshop also went into that I think go go into that survivorship care plan as well. Um, they specifically mentioned that osteoporosis is an area that often gets kind of left in the middle yep. between breast cancer mm -hmm. uh, oncology and uh, primary care. And so it's important to kind of identify whether or not the oncologist is going to be managing that um, or whether whether we should be taking the mantle. And I think I might have taken us away from distress too soon. My follow-up question that I, I just thought of is treating, treating that there, is it the same as treating just depression, anxiety? You just sort of get a flavor of what they have and then you would treat it that way? Uh, essentially, um, that the the only caveat to that is that they because they they try to break into uh, the different categories of where the distress is coming from. There are kind of multimodal approaches to it. Um, but if it's if it's primarily mood psychological distress, then then you quantify how much it is and you do PHQ two nine, okay. um, and then kind of go from there. Um, uh, the the other pearl uh, related to that is really that it's it's often. Uh, uh, appropriate to refer for counseling, um, which I, I think it's kind of never, almost never too soon if a patient is open to it right. to refer for counseling if you see signs of distress or depression. I think the other mental health things that I, I thought were helpful, at least in this part, is they actually recommend lowering the cutoff to eight for the PHQ-9 score for moderate depression just because affective disorders are so prevalent in this patient population. And then also being mindful that fear of recurrence can also, which obviously makes sense, can be a, a very common concern in um, cancer survivors. And the risk factors for higher fear of recurrence is if, uh, I think, diagnosed at a younger age, um, having undergone chemotherapy, if you have symptoms that go along with this. And just that fear is also associated with distress, depression, anxiety. So it's important to recognize and 
and address that when you see these patients. So I thought that was just helpful to think about. Yeah, and the one other thing that I hadn't had not occurred to me, but makes total sense, is that patients often have spikes in this right around when they're getting their screening mammography or, oh, okay. or follow-up yeah. imaging, and and so kind of proactively coming up with a plan for that at anticipating that I think can be a huge, huge relief to patients. Paul, you had also mentioned the sexual dysfunction being addressed by the speakers. What, what practical tips can we give there about asking about it and what, what can we prescribe? I think awareness is an important part. It's actually really common. It's underrecognized, underdiagnosed, and usually multifactorial. It's not just necessarily physiologic changes, but it might be associated with the psychological distress that comes along with uh, a cancer diagnosis as well. And and body image and a lot of things. So that, that will impact how you manage it. In terms and in, of screening, they, they recommend normalizing it, which makes sense. So rather than just sort of coming out and flat out asking, so most survivors who have had this type of treatment have impacts on their sexual function. Do you mind telling me, has there been any impact on your sexual function? Or is there anything else about your sexuality or intimacy that you'd like to discuss with me? Just sort of keeping this wide open so patients can discuss it with you. Um, and then in terms of therapies, they recommend things like uh, water-based vaginal lubricants, vaginal moisturizers, and then I, I thought an important tip is that if those things are not effective, you can use topical estrogen. It is not the recommended first line because there is the theoretical um, concerns, but the data have not shown an increased risk of recurrence with topical estrogen for, um, for uh, the sexual dysfunction. So I thought that was helpful. And then there's a lot of non-pharmacologic things to think about, like sex therapy, counseling, uh, even pelvic PT can be helpful for this. Paul, what anything else from the survivorship, that uh, breast cancer survivorship that you found that you found interesting or useful for the audience? Yeah, I, they, they also talked about just overall health promotion as part of the survivorship care plan, which I, which I like to make sense. And I was obviously appealed to me as a primary care doctor, but I, I was not aware that overweight and obesity are common among breast cancer survivors and that obesity is correlated with pain and functional decline. But even more importantly, the benefits of physical activity are, are super high yield in this particular patient population. I think, um, it was what, 30 to 60 minutes of aerobic exercise uh, three times per week, and then I think strength exercise twice per week was associated with a reduction in all-cause mortality, but then specifically with a reduction in breast cancer recurrence, which I found was absolutely mind-blowing. And then you know, the usual stuff that you counsel, I think also limiting alcohol consumption, sort of all the usual primary care stuff, but I thought the benefits of physical activity um, were even more profound than I, than I would have expected. So I thought that was a really important point to take away. It just keeps coming back that we yeah, for so for dementia prevention. It's like oh yeah, just take take good care of yourself. It's easier said than done. I will say I, I don't blame yep. people for. Yes, there's for sure. many reasons that people can't do that, but it is good to know that if you are able to fit it in somehow, it works. So do your best. Right, and it's more leverage to discuss it. Not you should exercise because it's good for you. Like like this will reduce the risk of breast cancer recurrence. I think is probably a fairly powerful motivator in a survivor population. For and for the audience, Paul's. Paul won't be able to uh, be here for the part two of this recap, but so I want to get get all the wisdom we can from sure. him now. Paul, what about the climate change and health? I had trouble understanding what that would be. Like, how do we, how are we tying climate change to health? And do you and Nora have insights for us? Yeah. So apparently climate change is bad. I'm not sure um, if you were aware, but like it's, I really did appreciate it because I was coming into this with zero knowledge. So this was climate and health for the physician's role in clinical practice with Joanne Bernstein, Evans Brown, Elizabeth Gillespie, Mahul Tahani, and William Wepner, and apologies for any mispronunciations, but they really started very, very high level. Um, so greenhouse gases, bad, lead to ocean acidification, climate change, air pollution. And then if you sort of take those to the patient level, um, how can that possibly impact people? So we actually had sort of practical discussions about what does a heat wave, you know, what populations might that impact and how does that impact their health? What does um, 
poor air quality, how might that impact health? And then who is impacted by that specifically? So identifying your vulnerable patients and then talking about what you can do for each patient population to help mitigate those health effects. So it was, it was, it was sort of a larger framework. You know, it, basically the entire session sort of inspired me to learn more about it. But the, the, thoughts, the things that I found helpful were a little bit of anticipatory guidance. So they, they gave practical tips. So for instance, with patients with underlying um, respiratory or cardiac issues, you can just check the, the air quality index on your phone. And if you're able to stay inside that day, by all means do that. Or you know, how much you plan ahead for a heat wave or how much you plan ahead for a power outage and patients that would be vulnerable to those situations because they're going to happen as climate becomes more and more unstable. So I thought sort of, it was very patient specific while still starting at a high level. So I appreciated that, but it was mostly um, inspired me to learn more. And Nora, you were there. Did, were there any sort of practical considerations or anything that you took away from it? No, I thought that that was, that was the main one, just to kind of bring it to the patient level and the kind of uh, the, the adaptation strategies to use were really targeted at how you can prevent uh, a bad outcomes for the patient in front of you um, related to heat stroke, related to power outages, flooding. Um, and so just kind of putting it at the top of their mind uh, that, that this may happen in your area and you should, you should uh, have, a, have a plan at that point. Um, they did have a kind of interesting model uh, that that I thought was, was I, I had not learned about, which was uh, this kind of exposure pathway. Um, I think is maybe worth worth uh, just mentioning briefly. This is the NIH cause and effect visual model, um, and so it starts with a climate driver, um, which uh, is a specific climate change that leads to an environmental condition, which creates or exacerbates an environmental hazard, and then that environmental hazard actually leads to the health effect. And so kind of we spend most of our time in this session talking about the health effect part and, and mitigation strategies and adaptation strategies. So this is just a little bit of terminology that I didn't know before, yep. but I think probably will be coming into the lexicon a little bit more. And they did talk about a little bit of sort of screen. So they made a couple of points of things, what can primary care doctors do? So they did it from an advocacy standpoint, which I won't dwell on too much, that there was a, a nice study that showed that primary care doctors are viewed as a trustworthy source in regards to education about climate change and health. So useful if you have the time and the energy to sort of incorporate that into your visit. But they also talked about um, screening for things like um, energy security and clean water resources, and then talking about sort of active health promotion and then the hospital guidance part, which is what we spent the time on. So it can be built into you know, existing primary care models pretty seamlessly. Um, so it's just, it's... It, the overall workshop, I think, just encouraged me to be more thoughtful about um, about climate change's direct impact on my patients. So what I'm hearing for the audience is they need to talk to their patients, learn about their patients' lives, resources, and, and think about this in the context of the overall climate change. Yes. Now's the time. If you've not been doing that, that would be, yeah. <laughs> be a great time to start. Use yeah. the CH2OPD2 mnemonic. There we go. For your uh, <laughs> environmental screening. Rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> Well, we didn't get into the 15 steps of climate communication, yes. which um, we also learned about. We can certainly link to in the show notes. All right. So we will link to that in the show notes. This episode is brought to you by 10,000. Audience, I've been wearing 10,000 stuff for at least a year now, and I just love it. I can honestly say that right now, all of my athletic shorts that I work out in are made by 10,000 because they work great. They feel great. 
they fit well, and they make just such high-quality stuff. I like their interval shorts paired with their versatile shirt. The versatile shirt, super lightweight, breathable, doesn't get soggy like cotton does when you're working out. And their shorts have these no-bounce pockets, which I gotta say, I just can't get enough of, especially if you're carrying a cell phone during a workout or a run. I like to get the lining in the shorts as well because it comes with extra pockets in there. And you know what? I I like a lot of pockets. But don't just take my word for it. Lots of people love this stuff, and that's because they test it on over 200 athletes, so you know it's high quality. Right now, 10,000 is offering our listeners 15% off your purchase. Go to 10,000.cc slash curb to receive 15% off your purchase. That's 10,000.cc slash curb. Green Chef makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, or just looking to eat more balanced meals, Green Chef offers a range of recipes to suit your preferences. With fresh produce, premium proteins, and organic ingredients you can trust, Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well. Green Chef makes cooking easy so you can spend less time stressing and more time enjoying delicious home-cooked meals. Green Chef's pre-made and pre-measured sauces, dressings, and spices get you more chef-curated flavor in less time. With Green Chef, you get organic ingredients and sustainably sourced produce so you can feel great about what you're eating and how it got to your table. Green Chef's expert chefs curate every recipe so you can enjoy restaurant-quality dishes at home without compromising on taste. I think a meal I got that I still think about often are these Greek-style zucchini boats. So basically the zucchini is sliced and stuffed with couscous and chickpeas and tomato and feta and dates and almonds and drizzled with this tzatziki sauce. And it's just, it's delicious. It made me feel super fancy and it was very, very easy to put together. The ingredients were simple. The recipes were straightforward. Um, So I could feel like I was accomplishing a lot in not very much time. Um, So if this sounds appealing to you, and it should, go to greenchef.com slash curb130 and use code curb130 to get $130 off plus free shipping. Again, that is greenchef.com slash curb130 and use code curb130 to get $130 off plus free shipping. That's Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. Well, this is this is part two of our recap show. Uh, you will notice a conspicuous absence of Dr. Paul Nelson Williams, which we're all sad about. The his fast talking sarcasm will not be featured in this next. But we have a lot of other like really great people here. And to start off, we're actually going to go to uh, super producer Beth Garbs Garbatelli. And Beth, you went to several sessions. What did you want to highlight from the the first session? You're going to bring up here. Yeah. So I was very like over eager and excited to be here as this is my first like medical conference. Um, so I probably overdid it. Um, we Agreed. Went to, we, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, both Wado and I went to the update in hospital medicine, which was really nice, really nicely done, like high yield kind of overview of top articles. Um, one thing that stood out to me was the PT consult um, article they talked about. Um, essentially, you know, there's potentially value for doing AMPAC scores, which we I, we were talking about we think are nursing um, kind of initiated, but having a high score there, you, you don't necessarily need to have a PT consult. And um, from the study that they talked about, maybe up to 40% of PT consults in the hospital were determined to be overutilization. And AMPAC stands for Activity Measure for Post-Acute Care. And they gave that cutoff of 18. A, mm-hmm. score, a higher score means better, predicts better outcomes. And they, they found that people with a score of above 18 probably don't need a PT consult and peer people with lower scores, uh, they, they should get a PT consult. And, uh, so that was something that they were just recommending. And I think, uh, as we were talking around the table, 
Nora, you were mentioning that you just asked the nurse, like, do you think this yeah, patient right. needs a PT consult? I basically, basically do that already just yeah. by, just by uh, talking to the nurse uh, to ask them whether they actually feel like I think that's better than needed. just auto yeah. PT consult. <laughs> yeah. 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 But if you want to get academic about it, the AMPAC yeah. score is a good no, one to go by. What else, Beth? And then there was also sort of this question, aspiration pneumonia or slash pneumonitis, antibiotics, uh, using using antibiotics in those cases. Yeah. Want to talk about that one? Yeah, the specifics there, I mean, part of this is just self-serving. Chuman, we covered this on Hotcakes, like year, like when they came out with the new guidelines. Well, adjacent topic. Right. We came right. out with like, okay, first of all, don't like give everybody clindamycin yeah. or metronidazole. We don't need an anaerobic coverage, right? So, <laughs> And then this takes it a step further. It's if someone has an aspiration event, but you don't yet know they have a pneumonia, you don't need to just throw that person on broad spectrum antibiotics. And uh, of course, there's going to be some clinical judgment in this, but uh, just because they had an aspiration event, they, there was a single center retrospective study that they presented at the hospital medicine to update and early antibiotics versus late antibiotics or the late group also included people who just never got antibiotics. Those people had, there was no mortality difference between the early antibiotics and the people where they delayed antibiotics or didn't give it at all. Obviously less antibiotics were used and they actually had a shorter length of stay. And I think this just tells us that we should be comfortable in most cases, just if they have an aspiration event, you don't necessarily have to just smash that person with antibiotics. But Although I have, I have one thing to say, I, a lot of the, my patients that I treat with aspiration events, it happens after the fact. They're like, oh, they're desatting. They're looking horrible. Yes. I, their yeah. imaging looks bad. They're like, oh, yeah, they look like they're aspirating. <laughs> Maybe I should start them on right. antibiotics. So, I mean, I know, I know we may have some witness aspirations, but I feel like more of my treatment in the hospital is people who were like, oh, we think they're aspirating now. Yes, because there's a rapid response. Right, there's right, right. there, there sepsis and you're responding to, that's a different situation. I think we're just talking about they they paid you and they say, hey, the, the person had their EGD and they aspirated and you get a chest X-ray and you see right, something. Right. You, don't, you don't have to hit that person. Yeah. They're I, not crashing. I think the case they used was like a, a man who's totally healthy, sitting upright in bed and like starts choking a little bit on his sandwich suddenly becomes a, maybe having a pneumonitis after that immediately yeah. following the event. Mm. So very, very specific kind uh, of look. Um, the, the other thing from the session that I wanted to highlight is just the, the bias in note writing. I think this has been out there for, if, if you're on Twitter, this has been talked about. And I think maybe we've touched about a little bit of this on the show, but Beach at Al and J Jim 2021, they, they did this look back at charts and they were trying to see if the way that uh, physicians documented about black Americans and women was any different than the way that they documented about white patients. And they, they found that these three linguistic features in notes that were implying disbelief on the part of the note writer, and those were use, use of quotes. And uh, so using quotes in a way that sort of undercuts the patient's credibility or um, using specific judgment words like, oh, the patient claims or the patient ins- insists this and, or, or evidentials, which is sort of implying that what the patient said was hearsay. Um, those, when they did look back, there was more of those three things being used in charts about black patients than white patients. And so we should just all, I, I think the main reason I'm mentioning this is just think about the way you write about patients in the chart. You know, it's like almost don't say something if you wouldn't say it to someone's face um, or if you wouldn't say it if they were in the room, I think when you're writing a notes as well, like the patient now has access to their chart. So you should write it in a way that that they, they could read it and also that it's being respectful and not, you know, undercutting them and decreasing their credibility. I think so, so just be a good human being, right? Yeah, just be <laughs> yeah. a good human being. Right. 
The S Gym crowd, we don't have to mention that, but a lot of you know, a lot of young people listen to this show, Chris. And we're the becoming, other we're, we're becoming older people now, and we need to we need to role model good behavior for the audience. And sometimes there's this attitude amongst residents, I think in particular, that the, the notes don't matter or nobody's reading my notes. And I think this just like highlights that yeah. people are reading the notes, and the notes are read by our patients now with the open notes, right. um, you know, kind of legislation, and also just like the first notes can carry through and can influence a yes. lot of care kind of rippling down the road of this person's stay in the hospital. Yeah. Justin, way back when the hidden curriculum episode, this is a hidden curriculum. Yeah. If they notice the attending is writing things this way, they're going to pick up that behavior and, the, and they're going to do it too. So we, we shouldn't do that. Beth, nutrition myth busters. Great, great yes. name for a talk. I'm sure it was well attended. It was really, it was like packed. People were kind of pouring out of the room. There were so many folks who wanted to be there. So um, let me, Paul's not here, but I'm going to, I know you can handle this. Plant-based meats are amazing for you. I, I've, sw- <laughs> <laughs> I've switched my whole diet over to plant-based meats. What are my long-term health outcomes? Am I, should I change my behavior? Well, long, the short answer for that long question is we don't know. <laughs> um, but the plant-based, in particular, they talked about plant-based meat alternatives. So, um, you know, those are the things that we're seeing in kind of Burger King and other chains where it's a, a patty that is not meat. Um, so it's not usually even just soy. They can be all kinds of other processed ingredients. If you look at the ingredient list on these things, it's long. It's just highly processed. Like a lot of them are using processed pea protein. Um, coconut oil is used in different forms. Um, some of them have heme DNA that they were saying they extract from soybean plants and they s- insert it into genetically engineered yeast and then ferment the yeast to make heme. I mean, these are some like Frankenburgers that we are getting. Um, and it's nice because they are eco-friendly. They don't have nitrates in them. But I thought a really important takeaway was like, A, they're highly artificial and B, a lot of these alternatives have a high sodium punch. So you know, if folks are concerned about their sodium intake, you know, they may think they're reaching for the healthy burger, but they're really not. And also if they're having that burger with fries, and, probably. And, and you said the sodium is actually higher in yes. those patties than like an actual like red meat burger. Yes. Well, they compared like ground beef versus this ground uh, plant-based alternative. So they do put extra salt when they make a burger from it, of course, for both. But I think this is a key point because it's, it's just like with the low fat and the gluten-free, like they just pounded those things with sugar and they were still heavily processed, but people are just like, oh, it's low fat. I'm eating. I can just go crazy. And I think the plant-based stuff is the same. Like you still have to think of this as a, this is not necessarily a healthy alternative for your body. It is a healthy alternative for the planet. And yeah, yeah. there, you got to be careful with that. But not necessarily tastier either though. Not necessarily. (laughs) There you go. I agree with you there. And we'll find out more soon. They said that they are like kind of looking at these, how they break down. And these burgers are breaking down into compounds that are not seen in nature. So, you know, a lot of people are concerned about their gut microbiome. Like we have no idea how this is going to influence that. So we'll see. Yeah. Maybe eat some beans, some nuts, <laughs> yeah, uh, some some proteins that are a little bit more uh, in their natural form. Yeah. Uh, the major takeaway was, you know, focus people on kind of whole foods eating and Mediterranean diet and things like that. Okay. So uh, to throw this at you again, Beth, I have a couple patients uh, in my panel that have had breast implants and they asked me, uh, someone called me and asked for an MRI. I said, uh, that is ridiculous. I don't, we, that needs no upcape. You have lifetime warranty on those and you'll be, you'll be fine. So let's not worry about anything. So is that, that, am I providing good care? No, unfortunately that is wrong. (laughs) Justin, do you um, disapprove of this? Uh, very condescending discussion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> so yeah, I'm, when, I'm playing a character here. This is why. Oh, yeah, this yeah. is why we'll never go to the improv tour. I, I keep bringing this down. You know, you know, Stephen Colbert's whole personality is a is a character. He was. Uh, this is my character. Yeah, the, right. uh, okay, sorry. Yeah, I went to this um, workshop on. It was called Reconstruction, Breast Augmentation Complications, and Breast Reduction, and it was really great because this is an area I didn't know a ton about, and I actually don't think a lot of providers know about. Um, a, we are not having people kind of disclose that they have breast augmentation sometimes, so that can be an element. Um, but one of the big pearls was that if folks have a silicone uh, breast implant, so they can have silicone or saline, but silicone in partic- uh, particular needs to be monitored. So, so it's actually quite a frequent screening schedule, and that definitely falls into the primary care wheelhouse, especially since sometimes people may not even be having these augmentations you know, in their city or in the this, in this same country that they're in. So it's something that we should be mindful of. Um, and if you're not sure what type it is, um, they were saying that usually radiologists are pretty good at sort of identifying if it's silicone or saline. Um, and one of the reasons why we need to monitor is that they don't last your entire life. So people do need to have them replaced and silicone ruptures are very insidious, um, and can be kind of a slow leak over time. So when that happens, they do need to be replaced and no one will have, they won't have a symptom of this necessarily. When saline breast implants are ruptured, they deflate. So it's a very dramatic um, presentation on exam and silicone you could not tell on exam if it's deflating. This was this was great news. I did not mean to be insensitive to the audience. My character was very uh, very inappropriate. No, but I that's why I wanted to highlight that this is something that like I don't think any of us at the table knew about this before. Now, now Beth, you said the radiologist can identify. Do you mean like we do that first um, MRI, then they can identify in that whether it's silicone or, yeah, or saline? that's okay. what they were saying. Um, that's not like a hard – that wasn't part of like the hard recommendations, but if people aren't sure, that can be a okay. way to check. Like it's probably on the safer side to get imaging and then go that, there. Did they say anything about insurance? Because obviously deciding to do MRI for the breast um, – might be a little more expensive from the from the uh, insurance standpoint. Did they say anything about I, that? I think they did. I, I think they said that it's covered as long as you document that they have mm. breast augmentation because um, it's guideline driven. So um, and yeah, I, I just thought it was a really interesting point. And like the the presentation of having a, a ruptured silicone implant is not something like it, they don't present with like some acute silicone poisoning or anything. Although there is this question of breast implant illness. They didn't get into that too much. That's a huge topic. Um, there's not a ton of um, evidence. There's no diagnostic criteria. But if someone's coming to you and they have a lot of like fatigue, arthralgias, myalgias, you know, dry eye, dry mouth, alopecia, skin lesions, um, and they have breast implants, um, sometimes um, you know you could con- consider suggesting to folks that they they can have them removed since there is a symptom improvement for folks after they are removed. Oh, wow. That is not something that would have been on, on my radar. And then if you, someone's coming to you with those symptoms, you might not even know they have implants. Definitely, yeah. definitely important thing to highlight. And people, what about cancer risk? Yeah. So people might ask you about this since it's been in the news a lot. Um, there is an association with, and people have heard about this, the uh, breast cancer. Um, it's a, or it's a breast implant associated lymphoma. So not technically a breast cancer. It's a type of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and it is associated with a specific type of implant, a textured silicone implant, which are not being used anymore. Um, And folks, if they have those, like they may come to you saying, hey, I have this implant. It's the brand name that was associated with this. It's not a hard line recall. People do not need to have them taken out necessarily because the absolute risk is still quite small. 
there have been documented cases and we know there's an association, but it's it's not so dangerous that everyone needs to get them out immediately, um, but they are able to get them out if they would like. So how are we screening patients with the, like if, are we, are we just doing our regular, like maybe, uh, like they're telling us they ha they're feeling nodes in their, in their, in their axilla or... Like, are they having B symptoms? Like, what, what are we, we looking for if we, we know these patients have these types of breast implants? We They didn't get into sort of screening for that cancer for these folks. I don't even know if there is, like, a set guideline for how to do that. Just have to be aware. Just awareness, yeah. In other countries, are they still using any textured implants? Like, if we have patients come to our clinic, um, is it? Uh, likely that, or is it possible yeah, especially that they would have textured as, implants? As I uh, Justin mentioned, yeah, folks yeah. that go out of country yeah. to get implants yeah, or because well. it's cheaper. We have a lot of patients like this. Yeah. Right. That is such a good question, and I don't know. And I feel like one of the things we were talking about is like maybe this is something we should do an episode on in general, like breast yeah. augmentation and breast reduction, um, just because it's a huge topic area yeah. with a lot of questions. So um, speaking of breast reduction, how yes. might you identify someone who might benefit from a breast reduction, making sure we want to get this paid for as well? Yes. So um, they did a really good job talking about that. And I can't even get into all the details of it. Um, but being thoughtful about how we document that in our like assessment is helpful because obviously they go to a surgeon for this, but usually they have to, we have to sort of document that they have had NSAID failure. Um, and we've tried PT, we've tried, you know, improving the profit, we've tried weight loss. Um, so like kind of documenting the level of steps the person has taken beforehand and that conservative management has failed. Um, so for patients who have macromastia, um, less than 1% of them are going to respond to those non-surgical management techniques. So it's, you know, really something, unfortunately, that's sort of a check the box, um, but it's helpful for that, getting that covered. And uh, you mentioned the, the two other things along with that was the improved outcomes as far as like breast cancer reduction because you're removing yeah. breast tissue. And the other one was about breastfeeding. Yeah. So important things to keep in mind for this. Um, so they it, they are very effective. So if, if folks are interested in them and, you know, having a lot of pain and, you know, having these chronic back and neck, uh, neck pain from, from it, it will help with that symptom relief. Um, it can even help with chronic headaches that folks have from this. Um, there's a reduced risk of breast cancer just from removing some of that excess tissue, increased um, pulmonary function, improved quality of life, all of these good things. But um, unlike breast augmentation, which doesn't impact breastfeeding, um, reductive mammoplasty can uh, affect breastfeeding. So sometimes keeping in mind um, somebody's like breastfeeding plans in the future can be helpful. I wanted to throw the question to uh, Nora and Justin over here about the women's health. It was it a women's health or sexual health session that you went to. You were mentioning doxycycline. I think this is a quick pearl to, to yeah. bring up here. So uh, one uh, one lesson I learned from the both in the women's health and then also the updates in STI screening. Um, uh, on Thursday, I think, was that uh, the standard of care and the recommendation uh, to treat chlamydia uh, is now doxycycline uh, uh, 100 twice daily for seven days. And that's a change from azithromycin, um, though azithromycin we're still recommending in pregnant patients. And this was because it's more effective and particularly in people with rectal Exactly. Rectal and it, and uh, there, there's some, there's a shared decision-making recommendation for screening for rectal chlamydia, um, but, but many providers are saying we should just be treating empirically with this new regimen. Dr. Burke, uh, practically speaking, how do you find this? So we were really excited about this in our clinic and we're starting to follow the new guidance and prescribe doxycycline and I went 0 for 2 on the first two <laughs> patients prescribing uh, oral doxycycline 
uh, because the patient ultimately did not pick up the medication. And one of the best things about azithromycin is we can give the medication in clinic right then, watch them take the medicine. Um, and even though doxycycline is shown to be better, um, it turns out it's not better if the patient doesn't take it. Yeah. And the azithromycin that a patient takes does quite well. Uh, so we often still give the azithromycin despite Just for a practical reason. From a practical standpoint. I think that shared decision-making is really important to try to figure out, especially if you feel how confident the person's going to go to pick up the medication at the pharmacy. Now, Justin, uh, the, I might have to go back into character for a second here because, <laughs> right. um, you know, whenever I prescribe metronidazole, I always am really sure, because I'm a great, I'm a very good doctor. I like to tell my patients, you cannot drink alcohol when you take your metronidazole. I don't care what the curbsiders have said in the past, uh, because metronidazole will make you have a disulfiram-like reaction. Yeah. Is that That is certainly true, correct? I think that your character is consistently consistent um, in both the uh, paternalism and uh, some of the misguided information. And in that uh, this is a standard dogma, was that metronidazole could not be taken with alcohol and in one of our previous episodes, we went through some of the evidence for why people thought this is actually pretty weak. And so there is new uh, guidance now in the STD uh, or in the CDC STI updates that there's no longer the need to counsel patients uh, to abstain from alcohol use while on metronidazole. They can they can go to the bachelorette party. They can go to uh, the bachelor party. They can they can drink up. They can do anything they want. I don't make. I think you still make make sure you do a good alcohol use disorder screen on the, these patients, though. Yeah. If, if they're they have to drink Universal, so badly, yeah. Universal screening for alcohol use disorder is recommended. Chris, People so. were very happy, and there was like claps yeah. and cheers. Although I do want to say this is from the update in clinical medicine for women or like women's, women's health, or, yeah. um, and there was less than five men in the audience, which I just want to like publicly mm. shame that because all male providers will have patients yes. who have uteruses and Agreed. breasts and they should have, we should have had more torn out there. <laughs> shame on everyone, including uh, the, <laughs> the uh, me, me Justin and Chris who were not there. We were, we had, a, you, there's so many sessions. We got to, anyway, but I, Next point, time. Ta- point well taken. <laughs> yeah. Women's health doesn't mean that uh, men were, should not should not pay attention to it. I agree. I'm shamed. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I want to go to Ira and Ira. Tell me a little bit about um, some. You 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 moderated a panel of clinical educators. Give us some wisdom. Sure, Matt. Thank you. So yes, we had an amazing panel of educators: Drs. Carol Bates, Sarah Tilstra, and Mindy Sabota. And this is actually part of SGM Career Pathway-based panels. So there's also one for clinician investigators out there, clinician administrators, um, all future cash like administrators to come <laughs> and learn how to do what you do. And I just want to share a few pearls actually from our clinician educator panel. One of the panelists said, "We should all start to think about branding ourselves. What are our buckets?" of interest? And where do we find happiness in our job that can be those buckets? And she mentioned we got to start fighting for titles and becoming graceful at self-promotion. And I thought this was key to kind of watch how others do this. And at a place like SGM, it's really important to do this, to see how other clinician educators are talking about their work and not to do work for which there is no title. And so this kind of is a key point to make sure that you're supported for your passion. The next thing that I want to highlight was uh, panelists mentioned creating community. And this means locally with mentors who are part of your team, your career and peer mentors, but also your community nationally. So getting involved with groups that have your similar interests. 
I mean, not to plug Estrem again, but it's a great place to start meeting people with similar interests. Um, Dr. Chilstrom mentioned that a mentor once told her, never eat lunch alone. And I think at a conference, that's key, even when you're tired. And to make sure you find somebody that you want to look out for and kind of hear about their work and maybe even collaborate in the future. And then another key point was going to interest groups and uh, plugging kind of SGM Teach in terms of faculty development and a group of like-minded people who might be your mentors. An unprompted panelist mentioned that for faculty development, they've been listening to our podcast, yes. Curbsiders ah. Teach, and Curbsiders Regular, of course. OG, I should say, not regular. <laughs> OG, there There's nothing go. regular about this. Um, but when she mentioned that Curbsiders Teach, it really made my heart swell, and kind of not in that cardiomyopathy way, but in the way that we are really having an effect on people, and people are using our educational um, products. So, phew, that was really nice. The last thing I wanted to mention was, um, you were going to say something about Nope. Oh, okay. Nope. Um, I just, last... I'm proud. I'm just proud. <laughs> yeah, I feel like a little mother. Um, and the last thing I wanted to mention was one panelist said, look out and see how people are doing things. Like, take note of how people do their work. And whether it's at a presentation, whether it's interacting and networking, show people or look out how uh, people who you respect are doing their job. What's their breakdown like? Are they part-time? And I will tell you, each person on the clinician educator panel was part-time for more than five years of their educational career. So I think really thinking about how people who you respect are doing their job and seeing how you can emulate that. Fantastic. And I want to bring Chumen in on this with uh, the the beast mode. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, there was an article that came out, you know, Dr. Kimberly Manning, our patron saint of, of med Twitter, <laughs> uh, as well as uh, her, her uh, consummate colleague, uh, Dr. Jen Spicer. And um, they talked about beast mode, which is bite-sized teaching, uh, where they sort of would, they can take larger subjects and uh, pruning, is that, is that the right word? They, they, they prune them into much, much uh, um, higher yield content into much, in shorter sessions. Yes, um, I thought it was super interesting because they found that eight-minute didactics, these brief learning units built around specific objectives, actually reduced extrinsic load and increased retention. So residents were able to kind of learn that content. And the pruning that occurred, yes, it did reduce the lectures down to eight minutes, but it also honed specific aspects of the talk as opposed to just getting rid of, uh, you know, 52 minutes of content. <laughs> Chris, I wanted to ask you too. If if I wanted to take a break from my work day and watch some scrubs, is it is anyone doing anything like that out there? Yeah. So one um, in in the updates of MedEd, you know, one of the articles they brought up, the title was "I'm No Superman: Fostering Physician Resilience Through Guided Group Discussion of Scrubs." So apparently, uh, at this institution, what what they what they did was um, they had protected time for residents. Um, I think it was um, about an hour uh, every month, and basically um, they would take. Uh, so it was protected. So pager goes to the attending, the, the resident leaves, they go watch, you know, a 20, 30 minute episode of Scrubs um, that was uh, predefined based on some character development or something else. And then they would have a guide discussion on that. And uh, they, they really showed that, you know, there was, you know, they're, they're trying to improve resiliency and wellness within these residents. And, you know, from what they could tell, it helped. And, you know, I, 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 I don't know if there's a downside to this. I mean, like, <laughs> Are there any harms? I mean, I think there's only part potential benefits. So you're looking at, you know, risk-benefit ratio. I think it's 
way up there. And I would definitely watch an episode of Scrubs every month for wellness. What do totally. you think? No, I agree with you, Chris. Uh, Dr. Arthur Holtzclaw actually and I went to med school together, so I'm lucky to plug his work. At that time, we were watching more Glee than Scrubs, <laughs> I think. But it was just so fascinating to me that he found that watching episodes of Scrubs with your faculty and actually having a guided discussion reduced burnout scores. So uh, residents whose abbreviated MBI, Maslach Burnout Inventory, was measured went down in 80% of residents. So a chance to break the ice with your faculty here and talk about distress with your peers and really kind of find ways to boo yourselves. I feel like if an episode of Scrubs does that, we should all be doing that. I can I can say that uh, just from my anecdotal trial of watching <laughs> Encanto on my heart failure service versus not watching it on a different block, my interns were much happier oh. the block that we watched in Canto. So this checks out. Nora, yeah. that is incredible because I was talking about this article last night and one of my friends, Esther, mentioned that there's a study out of Germany that found that uh, patients who watch Disney movies and Canto as an example however, in German, um, it went through chemo with less side effects than those that did not watch the Disney movies subtitled in Germany. I did not read this article, so I can't actually comment on it, but I thought that was a really um, important thing to highlight. Guys, laughter is the best medicine. Easily, easily. (laughs) Truly. I think most of us have been saying Scrubs was closest to real life residency as, as I've ever had. I, th- I think it was like one of the first that's episodes. Very, that's very consistent they, amongst yeah, people yeah. I talk to, even outside of the Curbsiders team. And, and Encanto in German is also incredible. Oh, totally, totally. Uh, worth watching. If you know me, you know I'm a real fancy guy, which means I like things like art. Things I know less about would include stuff like inflation, market volatility, portfolio diversification, having a meaningful retirement plan. But happily, Masterworks is here to help me out. According to Citibank, art has a low average correlation to public equities. That means that when the market goes down, a well-diversified art portfolio might not. Historically, fine art has been used by the 1% to create and sustain wealth. In fact, the wealthy allocate an average of 10 to 30% of their wealth into the art market. And while blue chip used to be inaccessible to the everyday investor, that's no longer the case. Masterworks is disrupting the previously exclusive art market. Their mission is to democratize ownership and make art investments available to everyone. They allow investors of all background access to an existing asset class that was previously reserved for the ultra-wealthy. Masterworks has over 300,000 users and has securitized over $300 million worth of contemporary art. Notable artists in the Masterworks collection include Banksy, Picasso, Warhol, and Monet. With this model, anyone can invest in blue-chip artwork at a more approachable price point. Their investing platform is innovative, intuitive, and easy to use. It enables their investors to closely monitor their investment with Fundrise, providing near, real-time, and transparent communications around investment progress. If this interests you, get started today at masterworks.art slash curbsiders. Again, that is masterworks.art slash curbsiders. This episode is sponsored by Blue Land. Audience, you know... I am worried about plastic waste. I am worried about the planet. I know you probably are too. And that's why I love this next sponsor, Blue Land, because they are trying to do something about it. Each year, there's an estimated 5 billion plastic hand soap containers and cleaning bottles that are just thrown away. And a cleaner planet starts with eliminating plastic waste. And that's why Blue Land has a simple idea. You just buy a bottle once 
Keep it forever. Keep refilling it. All you have to do is fill it with warm water, pop in one of their hand soap or spray cleaner tablets, and within minutes, you have a powerful cleaning product for your home. They also make plastic-free laundry and dishwasher tablets. And I got to be honest, my wife and I have converted all our cleaning products to Blue Land because we love it so much, and we're using our own money for that. They're not sending us all the free stuff uh, at the rate we're going through it. So join us, and you can get 20% off your first order when you go to blueland.com curb. That's 20% off your first order of any Blue Land products at blueland.com curb. blueland.com curb. Okay, and I think something that probably doesn't get enough love on the show at the at most conferences is, is the poster sessions. Chris, you were you attended a lot of the you walked around, you circulated, looked at the posters. Tell us some of the themes you were noticing there. Yeah, so I mean, I I had the privilege of going to poster sessions, and I absolutely love poster sessions. I've always debated how best to present it, like these recaps, just to give good justice to like the hard work all these people do when they come to S Gym and ACP. And, you know, I think one of the interesting things, I, I only went, made it to a handful of different posters, and there were a bunch here. Um, but, you know, walking around, talking to people, you know, I think some interesting themes that I saw coming out from this year was, one, you know, I saw a lot of posters looking at um, how telehealth is affecting people, especially looking at health disparities. Um, there was one, uh, one poster called Digital Determinants of Health. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't able to talk to the author of that because she was very busy talking to a lot of people coming around. Um, but so talking about tech equality, you know, there was um, this one poster, um, Connor Walsh over at the Durham VA, his poster is, is tech equality, equity possible, you know, looking at, you know, patient and clinician perspectives on video visits in primary care. You know, definitely in terms of telehealth, you know, we have the barriers like knowing equipment, especially where the older patients, you know, they, ha- they don't have as much comfort with these types of, of, of platforms. And also, you know, making sure that telehealth is the appropriate situ- appropriate platform for the situation in which you're approaching the patient. You know, in terms of satisfaction, you know, definitely it's lower cost for some people. They don't have to travel. A lot of, in a lot of VAs, people have to travel long distances to get to their single VA. Um, and actually some people felt that with the telehealth session, they felt less rushed. So they were sitting there, they were waiting for, you know, the, the call in, and then they did the telehealth session, and they didn't feel like their provider was trying to get through a whole bunch of stuff because they were sort of doing it on their own time. Now, they did feel that, you know, sometimes the telehealth stuff felt a little less high quality, especially the video wasn't great, you know, and providers actually had a lot of frustration because not only are they trying to provide good health care, but then all of a sudden the, the, the tech person's like, no, no, the, you know, like, get the, the video on. Too, and, right? yeah. so, that, so those are frustrations that I think we all sort of recognize, but it was great that they were sort of looking to this. And the last thing was, actually, some people really preferred in-person because they just felt like the in-person visits were just high quality. Yes. So I think these are things that we all sort of knew were happening, but I thought it was great. And I was seeing all sorts of posters like this throughout the sessions. And what about new innovative websites for medical education? Anything that you'd like to plug there? Yeah. So uh, what was awesome was I saw what, this poster um, by Brandon Feinstad over at University of Colorado. I first saw his poster. And then he actually did uh, a presentation at Innovation of Medical Education. And this website's called Teach I Am. The poster was about using near-peer teaching. So like senior residents teaching, you know, chalk talks and things to junior residents but also the actual uh, talk presentation was about how they developed this website. They were um, uh, they basically have residents uh, paired with different editors in developing core 
internal medicine topics, whether they're chalk talks or simulated workshops. They would um, develop these things. They, they had a peer review, internal peer review process, and then they would post them online. And it's free. So this is totally in the whole effort for free, you know, FOMED, um, free open access medical education. And I was able to go on the website and it looks amazing. And they, they hope, how did they hope that this was going to be used by people that weren't creating, that, that not the people that created the content, but people elsewhere? I mean, I think they, they wanted to have sort of just a system that's there for, you know, a senior resident who wants to like, I want to do a chalk talk on uh, hypertension. How do I go about it? All the information is there. It allows them to um, you can click through it with the infographics, but also there's an interactive component. So that if you bring it up on screen, then the 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 presenter has to go through things as well as the learner. Right. Um, so and it, it was it's just pretty cool. And then the people that are making these discounts as digital scholarship, and it's it's good way to you know practice practice this sort of work, and it's out there for other people to use. Correct. You know, it's still early infancy. This is the first time they've actually made it public because they wanted to make sure it was at least to a quality they were happy with before they started. Producing, uh, you know, making sure everyone. Hopefully, curbsiders listeners don't crash their website. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, teach. I guess that's a good problem to have in some ways. Yeah. Um, Okay. Well, I want to go to Nora and Justin for the the primary care updates, and I think Ira has a little bit to add to that too. But Nora, where where do you want to start with here? Or or, or was this just Justin? You had the CGM, the CGM. Yeah. So we did the uh, uh, clinical update in primary care with. Jeremy Smith, who was an incredible presenter, and uh, it was one of the top uh, forums, I think, here at the conference. There were uh, 10 great articles in the past year that affected primary care, and a couple of the ones that stuck out, I'll say first, there were a handful that we've talked about, the Emperor HF trial and difference, but one uh, was on continuous glucose monitoring in patients who are on basal insulin alone. And so this was a study, Martin's et al. in JAMA, where they essentially put patients on a continuous glucose monitor, uh, if, even if they were only on basal insulin, and showed that that alone decreased A1C uh, by about 0.4 points. Um, that was within an eight-month period. That was without any changes to the medications, without any insulin type. Yeah, it's just like the maybe behavioral response of having having that monitor, just having that information there. Exactly, which is very similar. There's weight loss studies, too, where showing if you're doing daily weight monitoring that there's some automatic weight loss. So just having some kind of more cognizance of what the uh, what your glucose is. Yeah. Decreased episodes of hypoglycemia. I, I think CGMs are going to be ubiquitous in the future. I think right now there's the, still the cost issue, but I think they're going to become very, like, just, just commonplace. And, and more patients with type 2 diabetes are starting to get them now. Um, yeah. So the study was interesting in that it focused on uh, patients uh, that were under the diabetes care of just PCPs, not endocrinologists. And I at least anecdotally in practice, I, I've almost exclusively seen uh, CGMs that are prescribed by endocrinologists, I think because their teams are much better right now at navigating the, the insurance and the getting the CGM to the patient, which I, I don't know a ton of primary care doctors right now who, who are super I've, adept at that. I've had a couple patients and I, I think they were just more savvy. They almost, they just said, just write me the prescription. I know how to get it. And I, I don't know exactly how, but these were a little bit more savvy patients, but for Interesting. it. But, and to a great point about this, I think the insurance is a, a challenge to overcome this Article, though, I thought, or this research study was very interesting in that 55% of the population had a high school education or less. And so unlike a lot of these kind of first um, premier research studies for things, this is very much for 
a demographic that doesn't necessarily have to have a high level of health literacy or at least a high level of education. Um, so once that kind of insurance navigation barrier is overcome, uh, this really can be for, for the general primary care and their patients. What about what about a, a trial uh, for rotator cuff? I need to go to multiple PT sessions in order for that to happen. And, and obviously, steroid injections are better for the shoulder, right? Uh, so this is a great question. Uh, uh, I don't oh, know. I'm in character again. Right, what's the, what's the character's name? I, um, <laughs> I, uh, Steve. <laughs> uh, I don't want to. I, I don't want any of my aliases. I don't want to put them out there. Dr. Vataha. We'll say Dr. Vataha. <laughs> Dr. Vataha, it's a, it's a fantastic question that is often a commonly thought answer of how we treat rotator cuff injuries. There was a trial that has been discussed on the show that has an incredible name, the GRASP trial for rotator cuff injuries, where they did what's called a two-by-two factorial study uh, where individuals were either assigned to one episode of physical therapy versus six episodes of physical therapy, and then either with a steroid injection or without. And the uh, short answer is that one session turned out to be pretty good, just as good as sit sessions. Uh, and the injection did help decrease uh, pain and um, debility at eight weeks, but not at six months or 12 months. Um, and so the injection, maybe some short-term benefits, but no long-term benefits. And one session of physical therapy uh, actually equivalent to six uh, sessions in this study. And this this injection thing with any any type of injection, steroid injection for joints is is typically over and over again. Maybe there's some near-term benefit, but at a year, they all sort of Not regress surprising. to the mean. And I think what's insanely practical about this is that most patients, when you order PT, they don't because of cost or just because of it's hard to find the time to get to PT, they might only go to one or two sessions. So it's good to know that that one one good session with a therapist can really uh, can really benefit. So I, I've been telling patients that this was definitely practice changing for me, um, and I think it it lowers the bar for patients getting in because they're not like taking on this huge commitment of twelve sessions. Yeah. I uh, Dr. Vataha back here. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to I wanted to just uh, ask Ira a question now. When I prescribe someone an antidepressant, I tell them they're not allowed to take it for more than, let's say, a year because uh, risk of recurrence very low with depression, and uh, they can feel really comfortable just just stopping it uh, abruptly uh, at that time. What, tell me, uh, I'm right about that, correct? You know, Dr. Vadaha, I have to say, <laughs> I too agreed with you. And in fact, up until a few months ago, I was under the guidance that at two years, you know, you just talk to patients about just abruptly stopping their medications. And I was encouraged to do that. And then comes along this NEDGEM trial from Dr. Lewis et al., where they looked at patients with recurrent depression. They actually conducted a randomized, <clears throat> excuse me, double-blind trial for adults in the U.K., for patients who had had at least two depressive episodes and had been taking antidepressants for two years or more. They actually only looked at patients taking citalopram, fluoxetine, and sertraline, and mirtazapine, which is specific. But they found that at 52 weeks, which was their um, outcome time, that patients who felt well enough, so they had to decide they were well enough to discontinue the antidepressant therapy, actually had a higher risk of relapse of depression at 52 weeks um, than those who were assigned to maintain their therapy, which was mind-blowing to me and I'm sure to Dr. Rataha as well. 
This is this is concerning. Uh, this is, uh, and I think this it's kind of bad news for patients too, because I know a lot of people want to come off their antidepressants eventually, and and oftentimes when I'm starting antidepressants, um, I'm mentioning you know this doesn't you don't have to be on this forever. This is not habit forming, and so this is a little bit of a I think maybe how I would put incorporate this into my practice, I'm curious to see what you would do is say that, listen, there in general with depression, there's a high risk of recurrence. And if we try to taper you off this, you might have a recurrence. So we just both have to be aware of that and be in good communication. I don't know if you have, did they suggest any other strategies for this? Well, I honestly have to give compliments to the chef because Dr. Jeremy Smith from Wisconsin, I am fangirling so hard because <laughs> if there was a award this morning, they gave the Homolsky Awards, Lipkin Awards, but if there was a Krzyzanowski Award for most <laughs> charismatic speaker, it would be to him because honestly, his uh, even his questions in the clinical updates for primary care had an answer that said, the, the primary care provider would say the risk of relapse is high for people who discontinue their antidepressants at two years. And I think just like Dr. Vataha, which I know is case reportable in his <laughs> correct answers, said you just have to be honest and open with patients about that risk of relapse. Was this the question that also had an answer we'll discuss at next visit? Yes, this was. Yeah. This was. Yeah. He really, he really saw yeah, into yeah. our souls. Yep. And I just, again, Dr. Smith, wherever you are, just pat yourself on the back. It was incredible. Yep. <laughs> Well, I think the last thing, this will be teasing an episode that probably will come out in about a month's time uh, in a, on addiction medicine updates. There was a lot of great stuff there. Nora, what was, uh, maybe give a little bit of a tease what we talked about and then give them at least one pearl from the episode that, that you found surprising. So just to tease the structure involved dis- discussing opioid tapering, discussing alcohol and what it means to be in recovery. Uh, We had a potpourri section, which I really liked. um, And that included a bunch of really interesting interesting data about e-cigarettes, about uh, hepatitis C treatment in patients who are using IV drugs, and uh, uh, methamphetamine use disorder and just methamphetamine use, which I, I knew Almost nothing about. Same, same. Completely new ground. I don't think we've ever talked about yeah. that on the show before. So what what can we do for methamphetamine use? Yeah, so we, we talked about one particular uh, RCT in the New England Journal that came out this last year by Trivedi et al. Um, and it looked at naltrexone injectable every three weeks and bupropion, uh, pretty high dose, 450 um, uh, for 12 weeks and looked at uh, the the uh, rate of negative drug tests at the end of that 12 weeks. Um, And there was a significantly lower uh, rate of drug test positivity in the group that uh, was on naltrexone and bupropion Um, at the end of that. The number needed to treat was only nine. Um, the, the, The Two caveats to this that have made it a little bit difficult uh, not to get into this too much, but um, one, the naltrexone dosing is different. Uh, so it's every three weeks rather than every four weeks, which is our yes. standard dosing. And so some insurance issues may arise with this. And then the other big caveat that we'll discuss a bunch more in the addiction uh uh, update and in the addiction series, which I'm so excited about, um, are uh, is that many of these patients are using alcohol as well and or using opioids as well, which which can uh, prove very difficult with naltrexone and bupropion. Yes, yeah. So if someone had a co-use disorder, this this would be a little challenging to implement. But our guests uh, do have some 
tips about how they approach methamphetamine use disorder, which is great. And then as Nora mentioned, Dr. Carolyn Chan has been working with us for going on five years now. And uh, Kenny, Mom- uh, Kenny Morford, who was one of the panelists uh, that on, our, on this addiction medicine update, are working with some other friends from Yale that are, at, that are working on this addiction medicine series to come out this June or July. And we're really excited for that. That's going to be a great addition um, for people. So we will, we will heavily promote that as it's coming out. And I think with that, we will have to get to an outro here. This has been a great SGM 2022 and uh, very inspiring. And thanks to all of you uh, team members here for putting this together. And it's good to be back in person again. It's been a couple of years since we hung out in person. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to see how that played out, Paul, because I, there's a lot of people around this table, and uh, Nora really Nora's stepped up. She really Stronger. stepped in for it. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're ready to graduate residency, <laughs> become a fellow. I've never been prouder. Strong work, the yummy. Get your show notes to thecurbsiders.com, and while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest, uh, edited by the great Nora Toronto, recapping latest practice changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or now on Spotify. Paul, they can they can give us five stars on Spotify. Look only out Joe Rogan. Same it, joke only five stars. Uh, or send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. And a special thanks to all of our friends here, Shreya, Nora, Justin, Chewman's, and, Chewman's here, Beth, and Ira, and... Uh, for, for helping us put together this recap episode. This podcast was edited and produced with support from the team at Podpaste. Thanks to Elizabeth Proto for running our social media. And thanks to Tima Karganov for his help with the website. Stuart Brigham, of course, composed our theme music. And until next time, Paul, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Nora Toronto. Strong. I've been Justin Burke. <laughs> and I've been Dr. Sheree Trevetti. This has been Chris that you mentioned. <laughs> hey, Chris is here. And as always, <laughs> oh, let's get garbs in here. Let's get garbs on, Mike. Garbs, Garbatelli. Oh, <laughs> now it's a show. All right. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson Williams, thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.